you're listening to Real Beast on Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3 and today I'm talking to two veterinarians about the subject of gender and food security. My first guest is Dr Robin Alders from the University of Sydney who is an expert in the area of domestic and international food and nutrition security research and development activities. Hi Robin, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure, thanks very much for the invitation, Real. So your work is in the veterinary science area and you were the first female veterinary scientist to be made an officer of the Order of Australia. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what it is that you do? I've uh, had the privilege of working for over two decades now in the area of food security And as my training is as a veterinarian, I use that in relation to improving animal health and in many cases livestock health, but also that leads to improved household food security. So I've been fortunate to be born and raised on a farm in Australia, um, to be educated at a time when education was a right rather than a privilege. So my first year at high school was 72 Mm-hmm. And that helped to get me to university. And then I've worked in a number of settings internationally um, at universities, working um, with UN agencies and uh, with NGOs. Okay. And just for listeners who might not know what food security is, is there a simple way to describe it? So food security, two simple words, but uh, difficult to achieve in practice. And, and generally we... Um, think that we like to say that there are four pillars of food security. One is having food available and here in Australia we often produce our own food. For some countries um, they have to import it. Um, Once the food is available the next thing is making sure that people can have access to that food. So it can be things like purchasing power or the transport uh, system to be able to get food to where people are. And that's very important also in a country uh, like Australia where 85% of people or more live in cities and away from uh, most of their food sources. Uh, Increasingly important uh, stability of supply and access, so price fluctuations, weather variability. And then the fourth one relates to food utilisation, so how well do we use the food um, that that is available to us in terms of, say, food safety or uh, even food wastage. Mm -hmm. Um, So and the, the nutritious, the nutrient content of food is also incredibly important in terms of our efficiency and the way that we're able to use food. Okay. So what what has your work seen you doing most recently? Um, well, most recently my work has brought me back to Australia. I, you know, I've been privileged to work internationally for over 20 years and um, really in a way working with smallholder farmers in uh sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia where transforming their household poultry from, say, having five birds to having 20 village chickens makes a huge transformation in their lives and you're able to do that through the introduction of a sustainable disease control program so that the birds are not um, dying uh, at least once or twice a year Mm -hmm. from Newcastle disease. But I've come home to Australia because I have a concern about food security in Australia and particularly food and nutrition 
security. I don't believe we're as secure as we like to think we are. What kind of roles do vets play in in protecting against disease outbreaks? Um, Veterinarians um, work across a whole range of um, positions to help protect animals and and people from disease. So uh, we work from the individual animal where we will be um, providing vaccinations to animals and we also work in biosecurity, so either to prevent disease coming in or to prevent the spread of disease, either um, between animals or the sp- preventing spread of disease from animals to people. So you're going to find veterinarians working at the individual animal level. You're going to find veterinarians involved in epidemiological um, work, so working at the level of the herd, and that and they'll be in. Um, departments of primary industries, they'll be in your health departments, they'll be working for the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations and for the World Health Organization. So we turn up in many places. <laughs> and that's that's an important point that veterinarians get involved in human health issues because there are some diseases that are called zoonoses because they can be tra- transmitted between humans and animals? Correct. So um, certainly um, what we know from the the history of human settlement is that as um, human density has increased, we've tended to increase the number of animals that we raise and that's also led to opportunities for disease to jump from animals to people. But having said that, it sometimes goes the other way and, you know, the the outbreak of um, influenza, which was um, named H1N1, actually showed there were studies where people were taking, carrying that virus and then introducing it into to, to pigs. Mm. Uh, so it can go both ways. That's true. And so why is gender relevant to food security? I don't, I don't think many people understand how closely the, the two things are interwoven. Almost, uh, as you say, they are they are intertwined and very intimately related. If we think about, in general, about the way our food systems have have uh, been governed over the last few years, certainly since the end of the war, the emphasis was on improving quantity. So the push was to get farmers to produce more, to have it exported and shared around, so people wouldn't go hungry and Farmers responded to that. The idea of actually looking at the nutrient content um, was not didn't have the same focus. And what they what researchers are finding now is that um, imbalances in nutrient content is what is leading to under and over nutrition. Now it just could be that if there had been more women involved with agricultural research in those days after the Second World War, that somebody might just have asked, well, not only are we getting a good price, but is this food nutritious? The other aspect where a lot of the work, uh, particularly in developing countries, and and certainly here in Australia as well, women are very active farming, and uh, the time that uh, they have to put into their agricultural work can also take them away from their role as carers. So, um, for instance, some work that was done in East Africa where there was uh, a deep desire to improve 
the production of dairy products, of milk, um, as a way to increase farmer income and to provide nutritious food. This was done through having dairy cows stall fed, and that means the cows would be in their little stall and household members would go off and cut grass and bring it back to them. And what they found was that most of the people doing the cutting of the grass were women and that an unintended consequence was that sometimes those women had less time to breastfeed, which was critically important for their children. So understanding the whole of farming systems and the multiple roles that women have from producing the food to cooking the food to giving it to the young and to the sick and to the elderly. And also I think what uh, is inadequately addressed through the general food security debate is the individual needs of the people for whom the food's being produced. So the one thing about women and about being human is that we have very high um, iron requirements for women of reproductive age. That doesn't always get uh, the attention it deserves in the way um, uh, available food is assessed um, and that, for instance, for a pregnant woman, she has a decreased capacity in her stomach, so she needs to have access to frequent amounts of high-quality food. So some of these very targeted messages about meeting the needs of either um, women who are at can potentially fall pregnant, who are pregnant or who are breastfeeding, which puts an enormous strain on the physiology of the body. It's not always addressed. And so producing food for a household um, looks very different if you then say, well, who are the members of those households and what do they actually need? So I think sometimes we've had very broad brush approaches Mm -hmm. um, without looking at the specific needs of the different uh, members. So... Uh, in many ways, gender is quite central, and I think we're seeing a change now as more women do become involved, not only at the farming end, but having them come all the way through to, to being research leaders and to asking questions that are important to all women. is How can I work and care for my children and look after my family? Mm. Because I, I understand that there are a lot of women involved in agriculture, both in developed and developing countries. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say in sub-Saharan Africa, in terms of the labour force, uh, women are probably predominant. Mm-hmm. Women certainly are active in Southeast Asia or across Latin America. And here in Australia, all you have to do is go onto a farm and you see that it's all available hands are at work. And so, um, and what's great now is that there are increasing networks for women uh, farmers and those involved with uh, allied activities to network, to get involved and and to bring um, slightly different perspectives to the discussions. Mm. Because I think even though there are just as many women involved in agriculture, in the I know in the developing countries it can be harder for them to own the land or the animals that they get income and food from or to even access um, extension that would help them to increase the, the health and productivity of their animals. Yes, very true. It, it varies from uh, uh, between cultures and I guess even here in Australia we had a, a system where 
sort of a culture that was handed down from the Romans where once a woman was married, she was the property of her husband and that happens uh, in many uh, areas across the world. Mm. And so it can be harder for her to make decisions over um, the assets that are uh, and how they're used within within households. Mm. Um, so providing and working with communities um, in a way that you're ensuring that women have a voice takes a little bit more planning. Mm. Often what you'll find if you just call a meeting and say, I'm going to come out during my working day and I'll be at the meeting hall. Well, who comes to the meetings? Mm. Uh, the people who are less busy. So if you really want to, to seek and to get input uh, from women and from more vulnerable groups, then you have to think about the timing of your meeting, the location of the meeting, the language that's chosen, um, and how messages are circulated. And that's, that's true even here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Busy farmers can find it very hard to get to meetings. Yeah. So where does your interest in gender equity come from? Um, I think it's a really interesting history. You know, when I was young and on the farm and I'd hear, as I say, I started high school in 72 and I remember hearing about feminists and all of these things and I didn't really understand what it was all about. I have to say I was fortunate to grow up on a farm where everyone had to do everything basically in order to... Um, you know, get things done. And it was coming to university in Sydney um, and possibly even going to through my high school where the assumption was that I'd be a secretary. So I learned to <laughs> touch type there. That was handy. Um, but understanding that my, my gender did actually impact on, on, on how people viewed who I was and what I could do. So it was a bit of a shock hmm. to me. So I guess my interest is not only... Um, in addressing women's issues, but addressing issues that may be of marginalised rural Australians as well. It's about ensuring that, that all people have a voice in decisions that are made. But certainly gender inequity has a, been a major one, but it's not just about gender equity hmm. for, you know, white women. It's, it's about ensuring a, a voice for the diverse um, uh, people who are out there. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you um, became a researcher rather than joining the typing pool. Um, <laughs> so, and how does livestock research contribute to ecologically sustainable development and improve livelihoods for rural communities? Um, in many parts of our world, the, the ecological systems are based on rangelands and, and uh, landscapes where plants and animals have interacted for very long time and uh, frequently in places where the soil um, is not of a uh, adequate um, quality to be able to crop for plants. So across these more semi-arid areas or rangeland areas, raising livestock is a really vital way for communities um, to survive and, and also for the landscape themselves. Uh, particularly large mammal species uh, are needed to be able to help with uh, fertilisation, with manure. And so rather than being the enemy of the environment, as sometimes the more intensive livestock industries are, are presented, um, animals and livestock are an intimate part of it. 
and it's about making sure that those systems are balanced and reinforce each other and that um, um, nothing you know that you're not going to extract more than you can return to an environment and often um, by having appropriate grazing you can actually enrich certain rangelands so it's around understanding systems and the role of the livestock in those systems so where things get out of kilter that's down to human management it's not really a fault of the animal but it's our inadequate management on occasions mm-hmm. thanks very much for talking to us today robin it's been my pleasure thanks very much for your interest next up is the song take care of business for me by nina simone Listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3 as Rural Beast talks to two veterinarians about the subject of gender and food security. Next up, I'm talking to Nina Matsumoto, who's a veterinary student and she spent several months working in Laos on a project to do with agricultural development. Hi, Nina. Thanks for being on Subject ACT today. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So what was the agricultural project that you were involved in in Laos? Um, so basically, I took a year off from my veterinary studies to go and do a research project with a quite well-established research team in Laos and Cambodia. Um, and I was looking at ways to improve food security for people in the northern provinces of Laos using kind of slightly improved beef, cattle and buffalo reproduction. Um, so their breeding there is pretty kind of laissez-faire, like they don't really do anything about it. And um, the issue that they have in Laos is that they've got about 
you know, every second child is stunted. So they've got a real problem with food security. And I went through and I was basically creating like a baseline database of, um, you know, reproductive outcomes and what the farmers did and didn't know and what the demographic spread was of the farmers. So, yeah, I went went off and did that. And um, now they're working on that data to go ahead and start implementing some programs and changes and things like that. Okay, and so why is gender considered an important aspect of that kind of agricultural research? Hmm. Um, well, for our work, initially, um, the I guess previous studies have kind of said, uh, you know, men are involved in the beef cattle and the buffalo and women are, you know, at home with the chickens and the goats. And a study that came up right, shortly prior to my work basically said that's not 100% the case. About a quarter of all of the people who are in charge of the cattle and buffalo are women. And um, more on top of that, as we found in my study, it's an equal 50-50 partnership between the male and the female heads of the household. So it's one of those things where we realised that to get the maximum benefit, and this is across the board for in development work, you've got to make sure that you're engaging the women um, and and improve their outcomes as much as you can. And so quite disappointingly in our work, we did a kind of little reproductive quiz and we asked them really simple questions like, you know, how long does a cow's pregnancy last for? And uh, you know, what are some signs that a cow's ready to mate and those kinds of things. And the women really consistently came out with lower scores than the men. Um, and if you've got this many women actually involved in breeding the cattle, then you, you'd really hope that they do know a little bit more about pregnancy, even just from a basic kind of mm. experience point of view. Um, and, and why yeah. do you think that they knew less? Knew less? Um, well, it's a little bit um, when, when you look at Lao and their history, they have had a, quite a peppered history in the past... 50-ish years, 100 years, um, but mainly in the last 50 years, obviously, they kind of got a secondary uh, wave from the Vietnam War, and so they've, they've had to deal with being the most bomb country in the world per capita. And um, basically their access to education from this current generation's of farmers' access to primary education was about kind of, it was like 60 to 80, 60% women and 80% of men received the full education. And so you see that situation where women received less education back at the outset. So they didn't really get the chance to learn a lot of that kind of stuff and get the skills that they need to further their education in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Laos is doing a lot better now, though. They are closer to kind of like 93% women, 95% and that kind of something like that. So were they traditionally kept home from school so they could do things like care mm. for children and, mm. and field work and that sort of thing? Mm, that kind of thing, yeah. Mm. Um, so in what, what other ways do women farmers in Laos have less accesses to resources than their male counterparts? Um, well, apart from the educational part, obviously women are very much focused on making sure that they maintain their household. And um, in terms of financial access... Oddly enough, Laos, as opposed to Australia, women actually have a, a greater parity in terms of economic access. However, that doesn't mean that Lao farmers have the greatest situation at all. Overall, they still struggle to receive like microfinancing and all those kinds of things. And a lack of education can mean that you don't have enough kind of uh, backing to then go ahead and do micro business and that kind of thing. And if the male head of the household was running the cattle and buffalo and this female head of the household didn't know anything about it, she's going to have to jump in and learn all of this stuff anew. So that's a, a bit of an issue. And then obviously, yeah, just in terms of political representation and those kinds of things, um, women are held back. But yeah, it, it's one of those things that we are trying to work on at the moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, how important are women farmers in ensuring that families are well-fed in developing countries? <laughs> they're, they're absolutely central. Um, women 
pretty across the board are, are very central to the, the household food decisions. I know personally at home, I prefer to be in charge of all the food decisions. That's just because I'm a bit bossy. <laughs> um, I, uh, women are, you know, making all the choices about what everyone eats, um, you know, how we're going to prepare food, that kind of thing. And they, and apart, aside from those day-to-day choices of basic nutrition, they're also in charge of making sure that every child that's born is well-fed. So from that conception today, about a thousand, they call it the kind of sweet zone for um, in, ensuring that children aren't stunted. So you've got to make sure that the mum while she's pregnant and then those first two years of the baby's life, they are receiving their full um, requirements for nutrition and calories. Otherwise, ki- kids end up stunted and it reduces their ability to perform academically and both physically because they don't actually reach full height for age and they don't reach um, full development for age so Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that really holds people back and making sure that women are able to make the correct decisions are it's really important yeah so do you have any idea how big a problem stunting is in developing countries um, it's actually a really great, um, it's, it's a very popular measure for how bad it is for, um, you know, where their status is with food security in mm-hmm. developing countries. So in Laos, it's um, about 48% of children are stunted, oh. um, which is astonishing. Almost, almost half. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's, a, it's a big focus of work in Laos trying to prevent that. Um, and at the moment there's actually one of my favorite things that they're doing is there's a soap opera because I, I personally believe that television is like the future for accessing large numbers of people and there's a big soap opera that's um, targeted at people in the villages and it's all starring Lao villages it's set in the villages and they put these really strong messages about food security into the show so they'll have this scene where a woman's kind of walking around collecting these vegetables saying this is really high in iron and it'll make my baby strong that kind of thing, um, which is a really great way to educate a large number of people, particularly if they are poorly literate. Um, and yeah, those kinds of outreach programs they're really working on and making sure that people are getting enough protein in particular. So who was behind that initiative to have a locally based television program? Um, I know that I heard about it through, I believe it was IFAD. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if they were in charge of it or if they just decided to talk about it a lot. But mm-hmm. it's um, it's a program that's available kind of nationally, and they obviously not all the villages have excellent access to television. But it seems that um, what is happening is that the kind of village chief will be like, "Hey, everyone, come to my mm. house. Let's watch the sh- what, let's watch the show tonight." It's a little <laughs> bit like a home cinema. Yeah, or like a Game of Thrones viewing night that you have with your friends, that kind of thing. <laughs> And um, just for listeners who don't know, um, can you spell out what IFAD is? It's the International Federation for Agricultural Development. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I imagine they do a fair bit of work across all the developing countries. Mm-hmm. And they, it, it's very good to follow what they're doing. Um, obviously, I'm very focused on Laos and Southeast Asia, but they kind of have their finger in a couple of different pies. So if you're interested in finding out more generally, you can go follow them up and they'll, they have quite a bit of information. Awesome. So how can we ensure that rural women get more opportunities to participate and improve their agricultural skills, gain access to assets and be involved in agricultural production and marketing? That is that's a million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, I, I've, I've been thinking about kind of that area and I guess like um, there's no blanket statement I could make that covers every single agrarian nation and their rural poor women um but i think the main thing is that you need to be constantly aware that women are 50 percent of the population that's really important to remember and that for things like food security which is one of the biggest challenges we're facing over the next um kind of 50 years as our population grows 
uh, women are household champions of food security. They're completely central to making sure that we are feeding the people on this earth properly. And um, if we continue to recognise the constraints that women face in whatever situation we're going to, if it's a place like sub-Saharan Africa or um, the Middle East or um, South Asia, you know, the, the levels of economic or um, educational healthcare uh, access are really different in all those different areas. So you need to be able to go in, find out what the constraints are specific to that area and work around them. And particularly, um, you know, make sure that you're being inclusive to women. And if, you know, if it's a, a thing in your, in the village that you're working in that the women don't like to go to the village meetings with the men, then have a separate one for the women and provide childcare for the kids while they're there, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for talking to us. You've been listening to Real Beast on Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3 as I talk about gender and food security with veterinarians Robin Alders and Nina Matsumoto. Tune in again tomorrow morning at 8.30am to hear Peter Farnell introducing Subject ACT's next program. Don't go away. Next up, the program ACT at Work, bringing you news, views, attitudes and opinions from a trade union perspective.